Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Well, one story dominates the week. The reactions to the death of George Floyd, an African-American man who died during a violent police incident in Minneapolis. Protests over police treatment of him and other black Americans quickly spread across the United States and internationally. His death has also highlighted the role of faith and religion in overcoming prejudice, with Pope Francis attributing this tragic event to the sin of racism. His words left no room for equivocation. Any Catholic who claims to defend the sacredness of every human life must combat racism and exclusion in all its forms. In a joint statement, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Most Reverend Justin Welby, and the Archbishop of York, John Santamu, the most senior black figure in the Church of England, spoke about the ongoing evil of white supremacy and how racism is an affront to God. Most Reverend Welby retweeted comments by Michael Curry, presiding bishop of the American Episcopal Church, condemning President Trump's photo opportunity earlier this week when he held a Bible aloft in front of St. John's Episcopal Church near the White House, where protesters had been dispersed with tear gas and rubber bullets. Later in the programme, I'll talk with Jesuit priest Father James Martin S.J., editor-at-large of American magazine The Jesuit Review, about his revulsion expressed on social media at the use of the Bible as a prop to support a political message. Joining me now from her home in Harlem in New York is the Reverend Canon Dr. Stephanie Spellers. She serves as presiding Bishop Michael Curry's Canon for Evangelism and Reconciliation in the U.S. Episcopal Church. Canon Spellers, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Stephanie, do you believe President Trump knew exactly what he was doing with his display of the Bible outside one of your church buildings in Washington, D.C.? I believe that he thought that he was signaling to his base, um, signaling to them that um, I think there was even one of the one of the clergy who has often supported him, Robert Jeffers, um, who said, ah, the president is letting everyone know that the Bible decries racism, but it also decries lawlessness. And so um, I think that's what he thought he was doing. What he for whatever reason did not calculate on is that if you tear gas and um, if you tear gas your own people, if you pelt them with rubber bullets, and let's be clear, rubber bullets are incredibly painful. And there are people who have been blinded and otherwise harmed by them. So let's not pretend that they're not bullets. Um, They are. So anyway, to do that on your way to a church Um, whatever the statement you were making once you got to that church, you just, you, you just made any word that came out of your mouth or any gesture, um, it all lacks credibility if that's what you did on your way to that church. Um, I think that's the part that he miscalculated on grossly. And I think it's the reason that you see a lot of religious leaders who honestly have given the president a pass, um, finally saying it has to stop here. Looking at the United States from this side of the Atlantic, and, and any student of history will, will know your history of segregation, but there's a new kind of segregation as well, a very distinct lines of left and right. When, did, mm-hmm. when do you think that actually manifested itself really strongly? It, it has manifested, um, I think, at different points in our history, of course. Some might draw the line back to the 1960s and those culture wars. 
and um, you know a time when people were marching in the streets and protesting and decrying the violence of the Vietnam War as well as um, fighting the civil rights movement here that during that time, a lot of Christians aligned themselves with law and order. They aligned themselves against the protesters, against what most Americans would now look at as um, the movement that um, that was actually us becoming our truer self. Uh, most Americans would look and say, yeah, that civil rights movement, you know, it was achieving the right things. Um, but, but back during that time, there were sides. Um, and the Republican Party, at least, or the right, you know, um, I think the right was um, was kind of standing against that movement for social change. Um, and the left, I think, was identified as the ones who were pushing for social change. Um, over time, I think that part of what's happened for us is that the lines have diverged even further. The paths have diverged even further um, so that you you had the Reagan revolution in the 1980s. Um, You had the rise of the religious right in particular in the 1980s, Um, which again, if you're tracking, you'll see that that was in many ways a backlash against the social movements of the 1960s and early 70s. Um, You know, that the religious right rose as, um, as a group who said, you know, like, we know what America is and we will fight for our America. And of course, that was an overwhelmingly white movement um, by design, an overwhelmingly white movement. Um, again, part of what was happening, and we've seen this when you trace the history, is that um, that white supremacy was morphing during that time. You know, that there were things they couldn't say anymore, things that were fine to say in the 1950s and even 60s. Um, but then they figured out, oh, but if we talk about law and order, that can be code for protecting white culture and values. Um, But as that's happened, the lines have diverged further and further and further. And then of course we come to a president who has to all appearances, um, who has made his stock and trade, keeping the group separate from each other, solidifying the barriers between us and, um, and keeping yeah, just I think we could not diverge far enough um, in his eyes. And have the Christian churches kept a low profile while all this was going on? I think a lot of Christian communities have kept that low profile. Um, if you look at the makeup of many of our um, denominations here in the United States, um, you know, on the one hand, you have the white conservative evangelicals. And you know that's been a pretty solidly segregated, again by definition, segregated group. Um, but um, but then you have the mainline we would call them, um, and so that would be like I guess what you would have the Presbyterians, um, the Church of Ireland, which for us would be the Episcopal Church, the um, the Roman Catholics, you know the the mainline churches, um, kind of more middle of the road, if you will. Those churches are often quite split in their membership. Um, they have people from both public or both of the political parties, um, many political persuasions. And I think a lot of the churches have worked hard not to alienate those members. Um, I think even churches that have wanted to move toward justice have had to struggle, Michael, because we understand that once the relationship is broken, 
once we no longer have the opportunity to preach and to be in conversation with people who are on that quote other side, we've lost the opportunity for conversion, for mutuality, um, for understanding one another. So actually, yes, like I think we've soft pedaled because we didn't want to alienate. But some of that desire not to alienate was because we knew that relationship may be the only way that things change. People have been surprised to see you know, people, clergy men, clergy women, be mm-hmm. angry and, and show outrage. It's almost as like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not, not becoming of you to show your mm. outrage. Right, right. And and <laughs> I've seen that. I, I don't have the hang-ups others have about outrage. So <laughs> um, I've watched. Um, but um, I think at a certain point, it goes too far. And again, I think that that's where the president miscalculated. Um, a number of the mainline traditions that I was just describing, again, here in America and probably around the world, have a history of complicity with racial injustice and even racial violence. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we are doing work right now on what we call becoming beloved community. And, and a big part of that is telling the truth about our history as a church, the fact that we have been on the wrong side of history so many times. The fact that when Martin Luther King Jr. was writing his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, he was addressing it to a group that included Episcopal clergy who had asked him, why can't you wait? Why can't you, why can't you be calmer? Can't you get those protesters under control? And he had to tell them the justice delayed is justice denied. Um, but, but for a long, again, for a long time, our traditions have, have been so invested in peace that we forgot about justice. And I think now folks are realizing, wait, you can't have peace without justice. It, it doesn't happen, it doesn't work. You can't have reconciliation without stopping the thing that was causing the pain. And as long as the pain is still being inflicted on people of color, I don't want to really hear about reconciliation. And I have it in my title. Like that's a part of my title. Like my role in the Episcopal Church is in part growing movements for reconciliation. I am clear that I can't speak softly about reconciliation while people are dying. Um, It's simply, it's not faithful. It's not logical. It's not right. And I think that um, we're trying to do this work. We're trying to do this work the right way. We're trying to pursue justice. We're trying to name our own complicity. And so when a president stands in front of an Episcopal church, a church working so hard to dissociate from, um, from white supremacy, when he stands in front of one of our churches, having having cleared the path with tear gas, we had to say, no, that's not us. No, we are outraged. Because if we didn't, it would actually have looked like the Episcopalians are doing what they do. Those church people, those Christians, are simply falling in line with their president. And this is not a time to fall in line. I'm going to have to come back to something that you mentioned earlier on, which is that reconciliation is in your job title. 
you're, mm. you're, you're, you've committed to that. And, and while I also appreciate that at the moment you might be emotionally engaged with what's going on, how will you take the next step? It's going to have to involve listening, I presume, and, mm. and talking. Mm-hmm. We who follow Jesus, um, he has called us among many things to be um, ambassadors of reconciliation. He has also called us to see him in the faces of those who suffer the most. So there's there's a dual call. Um, I need to be moving in the world in a way where I am curious about where Jesus is showing up and willing to believe that he's going to show up in the people and places that I least expected. So I, I try to live my life with curiosity. I try to live my life wondering if even the person I disagree with the most is actually holding some piece of the wisdom of God that I don't know, that I don't hold. So living with that kind of humility, I think is important, even as you stand for justice, even as you stand with absolute conviction that, um, um, that God is on the side of, of righteousness and love and protecting the most vulnerable in our midst. Even as I believe that with every fiber in my being, I am also curious about how someone else interprets that. Um, I am willing to hear that interpretation and to say, I don't think that's where God is leading us. Discernment is a part of what all of us do. Um, I sometimes wish that God had made it more plain, that Jesus had made it more plain, but there are moments when we have to discern um, and we may come to disagreement, but I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to be still that agent of reconciliation, even as I live as an agent of justice. I'm just clear that there can't be that reconciliation without the justice. You're talking to us from New York this evening. I'm wondering the extent you feel the presence of Jesus Christ, of God, on the streets of New York in in the pandemic and in the atmosphere that you're living in at the moment. Thank you for asking that. Um, I have actually prayed more since this pandemic um, erupted. I prayed more. I have needed Jesus more. Um, I think that when we feel strong and invincible, it's easy to think that you don't need God. When you're, when you're driven to your knees by life, I think that's a moment when you look up and you're like, well, as long as I'm down here, <laughs> I think I'll pray. I think I'll call on the one, um, in my case, Jesus, the one who knows that pain because he's gone through it. Um, to me, Jesus is not the one who died for our sins. He's not the one who died because we were such bad human beings. Jesus is the one who died because the state did not understand what love looks like and sought to stop it in its tracks. And in dying, Jesus died with every other crucified one who has walked this earth. And in rising, he, in the resurrection, to me, that's Jesus saying, death will not hold you down. Don't be afraid of it. Um, Don't be controlled by your fear. So, um, so for me, as I walk in New York, I live in the Harlem neighborhood, um, a very multicultural but community, but it's a community that's defined by its blackness. Um, that's where I live. That's what I look out on every day. 
um, and what I walk in. Um, I see Jesus when I see people who are smiling with their eyes, even though they're wearing their masks. I see Jesus in the way that, um, also I see more people who are saying, hey, how you doing? Um, because uh, before this, I think most of us were just walking around the streets with our earbuds in and um, very much in our own worlds. I'm finding we're not, we're not living as selfishly anymore. We're actually living more selflessly. And to me, that's a sign that Jesus and the spirit are, are, are moving among us when selflessness increases and selfishness decreases. Um, and I see that all over my city. I see it, um, I've seen it when I've gone out and joined the protests as well. Um, I've walked and I have to tell you, I, I, I took a small video as I was walking in one of the protests this weekend and, just, and I just labeled it, sometimes you have to yell your prayers. You know, that I've been praying so much as this pandemic has surged and it meant something for me to go out into the streets and to pray out loud, um, to pray. And for me, it's a prayer when I say, you know, when someone calls, say his name, George Floyd, say his name, George Floyd, that's a prayer. Um, and I'm doing that as a member of the body of Christ. So for me, that was a part of where I'm seeing Jesus at this moment as well. Was there room in the last couple of weeks for the darkness to visit you? The idea that you might have lost a little faith? Mm. I'll be honest with you. Um, the period that we call Holy Week, that period leading up to Easter, but it's, it's the period when we are watching Jesus walking toward the cross. That was a moment when here in New York, the numbers were rising so steeply. The curve was nowhere near bent. Um, so many New Yorkers were dying, dying, dying. And I felt us walking toward the cross as a whole city. Um, I felt, yeah, and especially as a person of color, knowing that people of color are far more likely to to contract COVID-19 and to die of it. Um, so I was feeling that and I was in the pit. I was, I was nearing despair. And that Saturday night when we celebrate what we call the Easter Vigil, it's the service a lot of churches have the night before Easter Sunday. That's the service where we say that Jesus um, goes down like he's died on Good Friday and so on Saturday he goes into the pit of hell and, and kind of wrestles with Satan wrestles with death and then on Easter Sunday it's him rising that Saturday I was journaling and writing and praying and feeling myself just asking Jesus please go into death now we need you to go into the heart of death and destroy its, its hold over us. Destroy the fear that, that grips us. And when I woke Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, there was a hope that I felt, not that death wouldn't happen, but that there would be life after death. And that has carried me since. 
Canon Stephanie Spellers, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Mm, thank you so much for hosting this space and welcoming all of us. Well, following on from the photo opportunity in Washington, D.C. on Monday, President Trump went on Tuesday to the St. John Paul II National Shrine for an event on international religious liberty. Shortly before President Trump arrived at the shrine, Washington Archbishop Wilton D. Gregory, the nation's most senior African-American bishop, issued a blistering statement saying the shrine was being misused by Trump. He said the visit violates our religious principles. The shrine is operated independently by the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic community organisation. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest, author and editor-at-large at America, a national weekly magazine published by the Jesuits of the United States and headquartered in Midtown Manhattan. He's also consultant to the Vatican's Communications Department, and he's had three meetings in Rome with Pope Francis, where they spoke, among other things, about the experience of LGBT Catholics around the world. This week, Father Martin took to Twitter to express his outrage at President Trump's appearance in front of St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington while holding a Bible. Father Martin wrote, Let me be clear, this is revolting. The Bible is not a prop, a church is not a photo op, Religion is not a political tool, and God is not your plaything. Father Martin, thank you for joining us this evening from New York. What drove you to tweet what seems like a furious statement? Well, I was pretty angry. I was pretty revolted. And the spectacle of the president holding up a Bible uh, for a photo op and then having cleared out peaceful protesters uh, with tear gas seemed to me to be the exact opposite of what Jesus would want us to do. I mean, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, and there's the president removing peacemakers so that he can hold up the Bible. What's going to happen next? I'm not sure. It depends uh, on his response to uh, the protests, and it depends on what happens with, uh, you know, the the prosecution of the people who killed George Floyd. President Trump tends to do some, some things that are very incendiary, and then people forget about it and move on. So who knows? What it has highlighted, though, is something that, that people mightn't be as aware of, but there, there's now even the idea of left-wing Catholics and right-wing Catholics and left-wing Christians and right-wing Christians, and it's brought the issue very much to the fore. Well, I think that it's, you know, it's hard to talk about left and right and sort of more political categories, but even progressive and traditional. I, I think that there are people who are surprised that uh, some Christians aren't very happy with President Trump. Uh, because there's this uh, sort of stereotype that President Trump appeals to all religious people or all Christians, which is baloney. And you, you see that in the response to his stunt, basically, which was almost across the board uh, revulsion. His visit to the shrine for St. John Paul II uh, added to your anger? It did add to my anger because, once again, he was using a religious site as a kind of prop for a photo op. And he stood in front of the statue of St. John Paul II, who had opposed racism, who talked about uh, moving away from the self-exaltation of nations, uh, and, you know, who was always on the side of the poor and the marginalized. And so, you know, again, he's, he's misusing these symbols. If he had gone to St. John's Episcopal to pray, or if he had gone to uh, Pope John Paul II's shrine to talk about John Paul's legacy, it's one thing. But just to have a photo op is quite another. We're getting a lot of vitriol for speaking out. Yeah, I don't mind. I really try not to talk about political matters because I think it divides people and I don't want Catholics to feel like they have to make a choice. But on some things you have to speak out uh, in terms of the, 
the murder of George Floyd, uh, the, the use of the Bible as a prop, which really was disgusting to me. I mean, it really disgusted me. I thought I have to, I have to say something. And it, you know, he is uh, sort of entering into the religious realm. And so I think it's a fair thing to talk about. It also brings up the idea that a lot of people seem to be harboring the idea that Jesus was white. Yes, well, that's false. <laughs> I mean, you know, Jesus was, yeah, Jesus was not white. I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and the people there have a certain complexion, and I, Jesus was not white. He was Jewish. Uh, he was, for a time, a refugee with his family, and uh, he was poor, and he was a laborer. I think we need to remember all those things. You wrote in uh, America, the Jesuit Review, about the, the comparison to the death of Jesus on the cross uh, uh, and the, de the death then of Mr. Floyd. Oh, yes. Yeah. So many uh, comparisons. For me, uh, one of the most poignant was towards the end of his life, he cried out, water, please. And, you know, Jesus from the cross cries out, I thirst. Uh, Jesus had a cross pressed down upon his body. Uh, George Floyd had a knee pressed down upon his neck. Uh, he was innocent. Uh, he died in front of a crowd of people um, at the hands of civic authorities. Uh, and his last final moments, uh, he cried out for his mother. And Jesus, of course, speaks to his mother from the cross. So, you know, the resonances with the crucifixion, I think, were, were really profound for me. And I, I have to say, I was moved to tears when I heard that he cried out for water. It's, it's just so poignant. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see how people cannot see those parallels. If, if you look at the civil rights movement, and I'm thinking back to 1968, and you know, I remember, I think it was Malcolm X who made the comment that the most segregation happened in the United States on a Sunday at 12 noon, where you had black Christians and white Christians. Has that changed? I think it's changed a little bit, uh, but you know, in terms of the neighborhoods where uh, whites and blacks live, it hasn't changed. I mean, I'll tell you a story. Uh, a friend of mine who was a, a leader in the Catholic Church, African-American, uh, told me that he was uh, doing a lecture one day um, in a town far from his home, and he found the local Catholic Church, and he walked into the church. He's a very tall, imposing African-American man. He walked into the church and the priest came up to him and said very nicely, sir, excuse me, um, you do know that this is a Catholic church, right? And my friend said, yes, I do. Do you know that this is a Catholic church? Mm -hmm. So there's still that uh, kind of very subtle sense of uh, separation that exists. How do you keep the momentum going on the, and the energy that, that, that has been released over the last week? I don't think we're going to have to worry about that. And certainly it's not up to me, it's up to my African-American brothers and sisters. But I think that the, the outrage over George Floyd's murder has been uh, compounded by people's frustration with the policies of this administration. And I think they, those policies just keep getting worse and worse and more and more repressive. So I don't think we're going to have a hard time keeping up the, uh, the energy. James Martin, thank you for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. My pleasure. And that's our programme for this evening. Thank you for joining us. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. From them and from me, Michael Cummins. Good night.